finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. This is a podcast where we talk about things that we read. And this week, we read two short stories, one that I picked, and one that Andrea picked. Uh, And the one that I picked is Sunbleached by Nathan Ballingrud, which is... From issue 18 of Nightmare Magazine, it was published in March of 2014. It is a story about a vampire. I guess, should I summarize it? Yes, definitely. So, basically, (laughs) the plot of this story is that there is a vampire living in the crawl space under this house. There's a teenager who is talking to the vampire. He wants the vampire to turn him into a vampire and also to kill his mom's shitty boyfriend, And things go terribly wrong for him. I thought it was interesting when I read this. I read the story and then afterwards I read an interview with the author. And I thought it was interesting that he described this as a story for young adults. Uh, Because I I think it really hits those themes of like teen anxiety and complicated family issues. One of the reasons that I like vampires so much is... To I like to see all the different metaphors they're used for. Because like I think your traditional Dracula vampire is a metaphor for like the aristocracy. Dracula, at least in the original novel, is a portrayal of the aristocracy in decline. Becoming this kind of unmoored, parasitic entity that exists only to feed itself. And then you have... All sorts of other, you know, sometimes I think some of the worst vampire stories are kind of like metaphors for uh, queer people or people with terminal diseases. Uh, One of my favorite vampires of all time is Cassidy from Preacher, who is sort of his vampirism exists to reflect his own like personal toxicity and codependence issues. Um, And I think in this one, the vampire is kind of a puberty metaphor. Yeah, I think that, I mean, I agree with what you're saying, that the symbol of the vampire... Or vampirism is sort of a puberty metaphor. The process that Joshua, the protagonist, goes through as he becomes a vampire is... It's one of those great things in genre fiction where it's almost indistinguishable from between something that would happen in real life. Because it's pretty similar to just being a moody teen and feeling your body changing and feeling detached from your family and the people around you and just being sort of surly and isolated... But it could, like, it could be that, or it could be the, him turning into a vampire. I think you're right, because I think a lot of teen literature, especially, like, now we have this new, more sophisticated writing young adult novels that are written more, less pandering and more to the intellectual stimulation of young adults. But I think sort of in the 70s and the 80s, a lot of, like, teen literature was about, like, waiting for something to happen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like... Joshua is in that situation. He's waiting to become an adult. He's waiting to be a vampire. And I think it's interesting where he starts negotiating with the vampire who wants to come into the house. And he keeps saying, well, wait, wait, wait. And he's sort of like trying to like transition on his own terms, which I think is an interesting way of looking at 
vampirism if it is in fact a metaphor for puberty yeah i think like well one of the things you have to do at least in my experience when you become a teenager and you start to grow up and you're you know going through puberty or whatever is there's a darkness that you become aware of in yourself that you got to wrestle with i mean that's why that's why goths exist because it's people wrestling with that darkness and i think the vampire represents that and you you kind of like always feel every teenager feels like a monster for a while and the the monstrous the monstrousness that Joshua sees in himself becomes externalized as the vampire and then we get the worst case scenario when the vampire is allowed to roam free and it completely destroys the home and the family in exactly the way that I think like a lot of teens especially teens who are in sort of unstable households or who have parents that have left like they're afraid that they're that thing that they're the vampire who destroys the house and drives the family members away and then that literally happens at the end of the story when the vampire gets loose in the house i think i mean if you think about the story as being about a predator then the vampire is a predator he runs into the house and he tries to manipulate joshua but on the flip side joshua is also trying to manipulate the vampire Mm -hmm. to do what he wants but ultimately, it turns out that the vampire is more skilled at the manip- that art of manipulation than Joshua is. And I think that's sort of another example of Joshua and he being sort of a fledgling adult where he doesn't quite understand the sophisticated nature of this sort of game that the vampire is playing. I mean, he's playing Joshua, but also he's manipulating the younger brother. And I think that's where things go wrong because once... He works his sort of persuasion on the younger brother. Then Joshua realizes that he can't control what the vampire is doing. Yeah, I mean, I mean, the vampire kind of calls that out when they're talking under the crawl space the first time in the story. He says, like, "Oh, you know, you gotta seduce people, and you're 15, and your idea of seduction is pumping away in the back of the car." I mean, he's being crude, but what he's essentially saying is like. You don't really understand manipulation yet. You don't understand the the subtleties of it. And he's starting to learn how to manipulate people. And we see that throughout the course of the story. But he's nowhere near as adept as the vampire is. Yeah. And I think it's, I mean, part part of the experience of transitioning from a child to an adult, there's this period where young adults have this magical thinking where, and that's why they end up engaging in risky behavior, like trying to make deals with vampires, is because they feel like they're they're either smart enough to handle the situation, or nothing bad will happen to them. And I think that's the thing that's happening with Joshua, is he it legitimately feels that he can control the situation, where in fact what he has is a monster living under his house. Yeah. And I think it's the same thing with a lot of like suburban fiction, where... The parents are non-existent. The father is gone and the mother is completely detached because she's an overworked single mom. And I don't think she's really aware of... She's not aware of what's going on in her house, even under her house or even like emotionally with her children. And I think that kind of sets the tone for like, you know, the nutty hijinks that happen later on. The house is destroyed from the storm from the hurricane yes because it takes place i guess in what mississippi i don't remember i know they referenced the gulf i assumed it was i assumed it was texas but you you might be right so the house is destroyed and they can't live on the second floor because the house is 
trash because of the hurricane. And that's how the vampire is able to get into the crawl space because the house is damaged and it's not level and he's living under there. Mm -hmm. So you already have this sort of chaos that happened, like, you know, this catastrophe happened, this natural disaster, and that affected the family because obviously the father left after the storm and then you have this sort of broken home and this broken house like you f literally have a broken home the house is just trash and this vampire I, I think it's accidental i don't think he was aiming for this house but it, i think it's something happened that they didn't ever tell you what happened and he's caught outside when the sun starts to rise and he ends up running under the house yeah. To escape the sunlight, which is like literally devouring him. Yeah, it's like that scene in uh, Near Dark where he runs across the field and he's bursting into flames from the sun. Yeah. It, yeah, it just seems like he stumbled upon this house and it happened to have an open crawl space, so he hid in it. But I was thinking a lot about this whole thing with this storm and this sort of how much it impacted the region and the culture and the sort of experiences of people who are living in that area you know after Katrina and after the other storms and this whole thing of like when something becomes so big such a like a cultural impact that it becomes part of pop culture and gets written into the literature and I think we're seeing that now with like a lot of stories that are set in the post Katrina south or dealing with like hurricanes and the natural disasters and the impact and it made me think a lot like this story had nothing similar to the um book salvage the bones by what was her last name i don't know i've never read Ward, it jessamine ward she won a, a national book award for this and it's it's the same thing it's about a family and it's set in the south after a lot of disasters and hurricanes and hell just these natural disasters have changed the way that people live. And I think this story sort of hints at that because it's like, this is our life now after this hurricane. And like, it's so, you know, messed up that now we're like having these vampires come in and like impact our lives and change, change the way we live because of what happened with this natural disaster. Another reason that I really like this story is because... Uh, I feel like it's very rare, especially now, to find a genuinely frightening vampire story. I think, like, there, you know, there's Count Chocula exists. The vampire has become kind of like a cartoon character and a firmly established archetype. It's so familiar that I, I think it's very rare that we get genuine horror out of that kind of character. And I think this does a good job of, like, rehabilitating the vampire and finding the things about it that are scary. That's what I was thinking about. Like I had, I had was thinking about like this sort of romantic vampire versus yeah, exactly. this predatory monster vampire. But I think it's interesting because if you think about like Bram Stoker's Dracula, he's a little bit of a combo of both of them. I mean, he's a romantic. Well, if you think about Dracula the book, and then also if you think about maybe even Powers of Darkness the. 2017 Icelandic version that came out that everybody was talking well, it's a, about. 2017 translation of an Trans older Icelandic yeah. but translation. In those two stories, he's a monster, but he's still a functioning person almost. Yeah. So he's not sort of like this primitive, like 
he's not like the strain, like that kind of vampire. He's kind of like, he still has like human thinking capacity. Well, I think that, as much as I like stuff like the, uh, what are they called? The Reapers in Blade 2. Like these like monstrous vampires, which are where it's like the human form reduced to becoming like this inhuman parasite. I think what's scarier and more interesting to me is that sort of more classical but still horror vampire take where it's like a vampire if you think about it is terrifying because people are terrifying and a vampire is a person stripped of everything that makes a person not just a predator it's a, it's a person with only the negative qualities remaining who's more powerful than a regular person like dracula I don't think Dracula is a human figure, but he still look can look and act like a human, and that makes him all the scarier, because underneath all of that, he's just this sucking wound in the universe that exists only to consume, and that's what this sort of vampire in this story is like. He's got the shape of a person, and he can talk and manipulate, but at the end of the day, he's just a, like a festering scab in the world that exists only to eat and destroy. Yeah, so I mean, if you compare like a a vampire like Bram Stoker's Dracula to the vampires in like Twilight, I mean, yeah. there's, I mean, the metamorphosis of the vampire in in literature has changed so much. I mean, in, even within like the romantic stylizing of a vampire, going from being sort of like a Byronic like lover to being like this brooding teen angst yeah. vampire. I really don't don't like most sympathetic portrayals of vampires. I think they're inherently problematic because a vampire by its very nature is, like I said, a predator. Someone that has to feed on other people. And then when you make them sympathetic, we're forced to... When they make them sympathetic, oftentimes their vampiric nature becomes one of the things that we're supposed to sympathize with them about. And it's asking me... To feel bad with someone because they have to be a predator. And that's uh, mega gross. Well, what do you think of like like Anne Rice's depiction of vampires? Like Interview with the Vampire, which came out in 1976. So we're in the height of like glam rock and disco. And what do you think of that kind of I have complicated feelings about that stuff. Because (laughs) on one hand, like... It works on me. I like it. Like, I like glam stuff and dramatic shit. I, you know, like, I like a poofy shirt as much as the next guy. And the, like, tragic, you know, maybe slightly queer-coded rocker, vampire, poet, you know, Byronic hero. Like, that absolutely appeals to me. But like I said, I can recognize that, like... Inherently, that setup is fucked because the vampire is a predator. And we're supposed to be like, ah, oh, it's so sad that he has to be like that. And once you, like, transition that metaphor over into, like, the real version of that person you're talking about, it's bad. That's, that's how you get people, like, you know, writing love letters to serial killers. Like, it's it ends up in the same place. And so, like, as much as I do enjoy... Me, a good, uh, you know, game of Vampire the Masquerade or, you know, a viewing of Interview with a Vampire. There's like an ickiness that 
you have to wrestle with. But I mean, like, lots of... I got lots of problematic faves, so it's not that big an issue. I, I still like Lovecraft, and I'm willing to acknowledge all the awful stuff about that, so... I thought it was interesting when I was thinking about the different types of vampires, and I was thinking about Anne Rice's vampire, Lestat, that came out in 76. I thought it was interesting that Salem Lot, which is another famous vampire story, Stephen King's novel... Came out in 1975. Sounds lots like, but is much closer to this. Like those are much more monstrous yeah. vampires. I really like Sounds Lot. That's a that's a good vampire story. Yeah, I'm kind of conflicted because I can't, my in my mind I'm like let me read this and see if this is one of the types of vampires I like because I mean I didn't read Twilight and I have no intention of reading Twilight. But things like Interview with the Vampire, I really like that. And I like Sounds Lot. And I also like when we read Kim Newman's Anno Dracula. I like that a lot. And mm-hmm. then recently I read a book called The Historian by Elizabeth Kostova, which was about a vampire and a woman who was researching this vampire myth and trying to stop this vampire. So there's all different kinds of vampires. Yeah, exactly. That's what I was talking about earlier. It's like the... I, I like vampires a, a lot for the same reasons I like Batman, which is like you can put vampires in anything and they can be anything. And that's – you know what? It's not not Batman because Batman's always Batman. The interesting thing about Matt, Batman is you can throw him into any situation and he's always going to do the Batman thing. And it's interesting to see what the Batman thing is in a maybe un-Batmanly situation. Vampires are more like Archie. Because you can throw Archie in any situation, and Archie can be anything, and I think that's really interesting and satisfying. It's like, you can have a vampire that's a superhero, and you can have an Archie that's a noir detective. And I don't know where I'm going with that, but vampires are like Archie. You heard it from me first. I think the character of a vampire is a very versatile sort of literary tool, and I think it's interesting... That it started to permeate itself into literature and pop culture. Because it's almost like every generation has a depiction of a type of vampire that speaks to that. Sure. But I forgot to mention my favorite type of vampire. Oh yeah, sure. What's your favorite type of vampire? Presidential. Presidential vampire? Oh yeah, of course. (laughs) I forgot that you're the... You are the capital letters Abraham Lincoln vampire hunter defender trademark. That's exactly, exactly. I mean, I like the fact that Abraham Lincoln can defend our country, both legally and vampirically. Yeah. What would you say is your, what would you say is your favorite vampire in fiction? Because I do have my answer. I don't know if I actually said it. I did mention him earlier, though. I think my my favorite vampire book is Interview with the Vampire. Okay. And I think that's because I read it before the movie came out Mm -hmm. and it was kind of like at the time I read it was like not there wasn't anything like it and I think it really like it's a really well written novel and I think it's an interesting story I will not comment on these later manifestations (laughs) of Lestat or the upcoming TV series or any of the sort of abominations that she's currently working on but I feel like this book this book is perfect, and she probably should have just stopped after the first one. Dang. I mean, she wrote a ton after Yeah. That. And, I mean, come on. I've never actually read Interview with a Vampire. I like the movie a lot, though. Uh, my favorite vampire in all of fiction is Cassidy from Preacher. And I think because it manages to thread the needle 
in an interesting way, whereas where Cassidy is sympathetic to a certain extent. Not so much in that, like, his actions are excused, but in that every awful thing he does, you understand why he does it. And it doesn't make any excuses for his predatory nature. It also works in that, like I said, his the predator metaphor in him has a lot more to do with him being, like, a really shitty friend than it does with him being, like, a sex creep. Not that he isn't kind of also a sex creep. I haven't read... The graphic novels, but I have been watching the TV series, and I enjoy that a lot. Mm-hmm. Almost as its own entity. I don't compare it, because I haven't read the graphic novels. We should, though. After I, I'm thinking that maybe after we finish Sandman, we should read Preacher. Because it, it would be an interesting thing to see, like, you know, that's Vertigo. I think almost like... Mm, I, Preacher might have started right around the time Sandman ended, actually, now that I think about it. But, but I think my I think he's an interesting character on the TV show. But my favorite character from the TV show is Tulip because she is just an incredibly strong and well written female mm-hmm. character. I mean that show is is off the rails. I mean there's some crazy stuff in there. Yeah. The other great thing about Cassidy is that he's just Shane McGowan, which is cool. I like the Pogues. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so one of the other things that I really like about this story is, uh, this might not be a universal thing, but like, I get creeped out a lot by sickness. Specifically, the, like, idea of something that's inhuman but ill, like, has an immediate visceral effect on me. I was really scared of the parts in E.T. where he's sick when I was a kid. Uh, one of the things like uh, that makes Eraserhead really hard for me to watch is the parts where the horse baby becomes sick. And so the idea of this, like, vampire who's this, like, powerful, inhuman, paranormal creature, but it's, like, ill and wounded and pathetic and, like, crouching in the crawl space like a fucking possum that got its legs run over is, like, viscerally disturbing to me. And then also this idea of, like, something that's wounded... And, like, reduced to this pathetic state. But then at any moment, because it is a dangerous, wild beast, at any moment there can be a reversal and it'll turn on you. And now you're fucked. Which is, like, what happens in the story. And I also just think, like, the image of him crouching in the crawl space, talking to this, like, figure with its skull exposed, is just, like, a beautifully creepy image. Like... The visuals in this story are really compelling, and, like, the movie that exists of it in my head is fucking great. Well, I think that's one of the reasons why it it also appealed to me, is that it's very sophisticated. And it I even admired it a little bit more once I realized that the author's goal was to write a young adult story. Because I felt like it was very, sort of sophisticated and it was very well written and visually it was very descriptive and it was like a short story so it really packed a lot of like visual description in a short kind of story it kind of reminded me of when we were talking about last time about hellraiser oh yeah and that whole sort of creepiness of the like you know the sick like entity that needed to be fed to get better and Mm -hmm. how that sort of repulsed someone because usually when someone is sick your initial attention is like i want to take care of this person 
But these are creatures that are wounded and sick that you're even more repulsed about because you do, there's no nurturing nature. They don't like evoke any kind of like caring feeling from you. It's almost like the most horrible character that you cannot relate to because it just it's so against human nature to see like an animal or a creature in need and not want to help them. Yeah. So two things. One, I did pick this story because we talked about Hellraiser. And I always think about the vampire in this and Frank and Hellraiser in sort of the same uh, thought. Uh, the other thing is, I think one of the things that horror can do is that I think is really useful about horror is it can force us to confront things we feel, feelings we hold that we are disgusted by. Stuff that you know you feel but you don't want to feel or shouldn't feel. And... One of the worst feelings you can have is, like, lack of empathy for the ill or wounded or straight-up disgust at them. And some of the most effective horror evokes that and makes you confront the fact that you feel this way, that you can you can see something that's suffering and be repulsed. Like, that, it feels bad to feel that way, and... Sometimes you need to confront that because it's, you know, sometimes you got to fight through that if you want to actually help people. I think that's true because sometimes when you read a really good horror story, you get frightened. I mean, you're just scared. Like, sounds like you're just scared. Mm -hmm. Scary things are happening and your heart is racing and you're having. But some of really good horror almost gives you this feeling of like uncomfortableness that sort of lingers. And that's almost like a psychological feeling like you feel guilty for feeling this way and that's like a really effect that's it's even in in some ways better than being grossed out and scared well i think that that's the thing like if you're gonna if you're gonna employ gross shit in your horror then it should be in service of something and the most natural thing for gross shit to be in service of is evoking this uncomfortable feeling in people like that's why like Cronenberg stuff works so much is that it's not just or the difference between like a Cronenberg movie and like um I don't know like a trauma movie is that the gross stuff in and the body horror in Cronenberg serves a purpose it's making you confront a feeling that you have inside of yourself or it's illuminating something grotesque about the world and it's not just there to make you go well, I think you're right. I think, and I think this goes even to the new work, the new weird, mm-hmm. which we had talked about before. Part of what makes the new weird so unsettling and provocative is just makes you feel uncomfortable. Yeah, exactly. And I think, like, and a lot of it has to do with sort of body image and you know the roles, gender roles, and all these sort of things that get swirled around in this like blender that becomes new weird. And I think what it does, it really puts you off, like it. Put like it off foots you. It doesn't put you off like it repulses you, but it just it puts you off the norm of what you expect things to be. And I think having forcing you to think about something in a three sixty way of like, you know, this is how things are now or this you know, things have changed, I think that really sort of gives people it either can expand people's minds or it can make them so upset that you know they either way they're getting some kind of reaction from it either good or bad yeah yeah i mean did you hate the vampire in this or did you like him 
I mean, I liked him. I liked him from like a writing standpoint. I think he's a really cool and effective horror villain. I think he's gross and awful. <laughs> like, I, I don't think he's like a cool dude. But I thought this was like a really a solid and effective portrayal of a vampire. Yeah, you know what he actually reminded me of more than more than like Frank and Hellraiser or anything is uh oh shit, what's his name? Give me a second. The Misfit. Oh yes. From a good man is hard to find. That's what it was. He reminded me of the Misfit. I was waiting for you to bring up Flannery O'Connor this whole time. Because I feel like this this is a Southern Gothic story, right? Yes. Oh, definitely. It's a Southern Gothic horror story. Oh, definitely. But I mean, I was thinking like, I mean, I was surprised at the amount of like thought that I had given this story even after I read it. I mean, I was thinking about how did the vamp, where did he come from? How did he get there? What's, why was he running through the field? What's going on? You know, what's going to happen after, you know, he takes over this house. So it really sort of made me think and made me want to know more. Like maybe there was more stories or if there was a longer story. So I thought that was really good. Yeah, I think he does a good job of putting a lot of texture into the vampire uh, in a short amount of time. Like, you know, he mentions being raised Baptist. And so he he has a complicated relationship with the concept of God. And so that's like an interesting thing where you're like, I wonder what, what that means and what that's like. You know, you can kind of envision him becoming a vampire and going back to his home and being repelled by his mother with a cross or something. And then... He talks about working on a farm that harvested sugarcane. And so that seems to imply that he's pretty old. That he might have been from, you know, like at least the 1800s, if not older. And so it's like, what's he been doing all this time? Just kind of like lurking around the South, being this like predator. And like you said, like, what's he going to do with the house? What's he going to do later? I think it, him taking over the house and being like, oh, I'm going to have this for a few days sort of implies that he's almost like i said like he's almost like the misfit he's like this roving serial killer and like once he's done with the house and he's back to his full strength he's gonna slink off into the night and find another family or person or whatever to prey on yeah it is like a take on that like killer on the road or like what you let into your house kind of danger yeah do you oh this is kind of changing the subject i guess do you think that joshua is committing suicide at the end of the story do you think he's letting the son kill him? I don't know. I thought he... I Maybe. I didn't really think too much about it. I, I really focused on the vampire. But that's an interesting thing. I thought maybe he was testing himself to see if he was a vampire. Mm-hmm. Because I felt like he had the option of himself going under the house and waiting till it was dark. I mean, that's what the vampire seems to be setting up. When he's like, oh, I prefer you not to be in the house. Oops. I tapped the table with my phone. Uh, when he's like, oh, I prefer you not to be in the house. He's clearly being, like, cruel and trying to set up this, like, ironic punishment. It's like, now you have to hide under the house. And also you're going to have to live with the guilt of me killing your family. But he doesn't do it. Like, by the end of the story, the narration is just talking about the sun rising and the and baking the color out of everything. So we don't know if he ever goes under the house. And, I mean, by the law of narrative inertia, he doesn't, Right. Right. But I think it also, I mean, it's, when people think about vampires, there's always this sort of plot line where the, you know, the vampire is this benevolent father who's going to bestow this gift. Yeah. And then I feel like, you know, and they're going to nurture them through the process of becoming a vampire. I mean, you even see that in like interview with the vampire. But in this thing, he's kind of saying like, 
you know, I, you had a bad father and now you're a vampire and you have another bad father because I'm just going to throw you out of the house and make you live underneath Yeah. It. Well, that's the other thing we didn't touch on is the idea that the vampire is Tyler, the shitty boyfriend. Because, like, like Tyler, he's a he swoops in in the absence of the father in the wake of the storm and ingratiates himself into the family and becomes has like an antagonistic relationship with Joshua. Like I think there's a way to read this story where it's purely metaphorical and the vampire is like Tyler is presented as like a largely neutral figure. Like we don't really know that much about him or what he does. There's one hint at him being bad where uh, Joshua is like, he can't even look at us. And then he calls him the R word. But I think there's a way to read the story where it's like Tyler is abusive and predatory and the vampire is his way of Joshua's way of coping with that side of Tyler divorcing it from the actual human dude because he views the actions he's taking as being too inhuman to come from a real person but what if there turns out there's no vampire what if it is just in Joshua's mind almost like a psychotic break well, that's what I'm saying I think well I think there's the way that I read the story is I mean like I think narratively yeah there's a vampire but like the metaphorically the way I read the story is that like the vampire is an extension of Joshua. He's a representation of the darkness inside Joshua. And I think that can be followed to the conclusion where there is no vampire, but I don't think there's a lot in the story to necessarily support that. I don't think there's a lot in the actual text to support the idea that the vampire doesn't exist and it's just Tyler. But I do think, like, there's a way to read it where the vampire is a metaphor for, like, an abusive, like, stepfather figure. And I think that's one of the things that makes it, a, that almost makes it very much... Now that you know something written for young adults who may be going through some kind of complicated family situation sure. or merging families or separated families or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Do you have anything else to say about Sunbleached? Yeah. I thought it was interesting. I've never read anything else this guy's written, but I like this story a lot. I think that's a, a theme we're seeing with a lot of the stories I'm picking where it's like these one-off short stories where I never ended up interrogating the rest of this person's catalog but i think i would like to because the story's real good yeah no i i definitely think he either has a really strong career start or you know he's working on a really good body of work so i picked this story which is Oli luke oi the dream god i don't know if that's the correct pronunciation but since the theme that we have in our podcast is to mispronounce things yeah we're just gonna go with that but it is um I guess it's called The Dream God, and it's by Hans Christian Andersen, and it's from his fairy tales, which was written in the 1840s. I think it's Ol Luck Oe, like 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 the old old Luck Oe, like yeah, like old timey. Yes. Um, but I don't know because I'm not Hans Christian Andersen. So anyway, this is Hans Christian and. Anderson is well known for writing these sort of fairy tales that in now in modern pop culture have been sort of sanitized and Disneyfied and sort of made into these um, sort of nice, wholesome stories for children. But when Hans Christian Anderson was writing these almost like Grimm's fairy tales, they're cautionary tales, they're fables. They're stories meant to prepare children for something that could possibly happen in their life. Yeah, he's kind of the Sega to Grimm's Nintendo. Right. Like, I think the most famous sources 
uh, for fairy tales, you know, for people reading them in the modern age, are Hans Christian Andersen, the Brothers Grimm, and then maybe Andrew Lang through his fairy books. Because I had never, before we read this, I had never actually really sat down and read a Hans Christian Andersen fairy tale. All the the fairy tales I've actually, like, read as an adult have either been from Grimm's or from the, the Andrew Lang fairy books. So this was my first experience with um, his writing style, I guess. Well, I think it's interesting because a lot of what he wrote about were stories that he based on oral traditions or stories that he himself had heard as a child or he collected from other people and he at the time that he was writing them tried to write them in a way that would appeal to children i think you can tell if you're familiar with like a lot of scholarship about folklore or even like the bible i think you can kind of tell reading this story that it's clearly compiled from other pre-existing stories because like so one of the things with like the bible is that there's like um there's lots of repeated stuff in it. And one of the explanations is like literally like the gospels are all just like different versions of the same story. And one of the explanations for that is that they're compiled from these different sources and when you're editing them some concession that you might make is to just repeat stories rather than editing out one that's redundant because you don't want to piss off whatever community that's from. Like that's a thing in like the the documentary hypothesis of the Old Testament where it's like Certain things just, like, happen once and then they happen again right afterwards. And that's probably because it's one version from one source and one version from another source. And the compromise was just to put them both in. Because this has that, where it's like, uh, the story is split into different days of the week. Well, I was going to say, you co-opted the part where I'm supposed to give the synopsis Oh, I'm so sorry. I got overexcited. Yes. So, it's the story of a little boy who, his name is Yammer. Hallmar, maybe? Hallmar. It's like a... It's got a J in it. It's H-J-A-L-M-A-R, so... So, he's a nice um, Swedish boy who is going to be visited by this dream god, this man who's going to visit him in his dream for seven nights. And this is a classic Hans Christian Andersen thing where he... Something happens and he tells the, the character in the story, something's going to happen for a certain amount of times and then once we reach that time the consequence is going to be reaped. Sure. So he says to the little boy, we're going to visit you for seven days mm-hmm. and in your dreams and we're going to do things. So that's how the story sets up. So every day something happens in his dreams. So the character that's visiting him, who ends up is Oi, the dream god, is this sort of well-dressed man who carries these umbrellas. He has two umbrellas, <laughs> A, a, you know, I don't know how he describes the umbrellas. One, he puts the one umbrella over your head and you'll see sweet dreams. And then he puts the other... And you don't dream at all. One you, is one is like blank and one is... Yeah, and one has a beautiful picture on it that's the dream umbrella. The image of someone carrying two umbrellas is a very funny visual to me. I really like... What? <laughs> it makes me think of the part in 30 Rock where Jack Donaghy is going to be in the like... He's going to be on the show, and he can't figure out what to do with his hands. And at one point, he's just holding two coffee mugs. <laughs> and he's like, this feels natural. Like, that's what I think of when I imagine this dude with two open umbrellas walking around. But I think it's interesting because he comes into their room, and he puts sand in their eyes. Mm-hmm. And he rubs them on their necks, and then he puts them to sleep. And then once you go to sleep, you get a choice. You, you 
it selected for you one of these two umbrellas. So, but I think it's supposed to be sort of a take on like, well, he's supposed to be obviously the Sandman, which is one of the reasons why I picked this because I thought it was an interesting alternative depiction of the Sandman. I didn't, I was not prepared for how much of the of the Sandman comic is drawn from this story. Yeah, but I think it even goes back to an even earlier story, We Willy Winkle, who is supposed to be an alternative version of the Sandman. And I think it's sort of... The nursery rhyme? It makes, we Willy Winky? It makes me kind of like... It baffles me that you would tell your child this story and expect them to go to sleep. If I told you that story when you oh, were terrified. a child, you would not you would you one have 5000 questions Absolutely. about the backstory and origin of this dream god and then you would be terrified about the, what's going to happen. Yeah, can, okay, so I was I had a revelation while I was reading this. It doesn't really come up in the story. In the story if you're bad, you just get no dreams. But I was thinking about how fucked up the idea that bad kids get nightmares, which I've seen in other places is. Because most of the time when you have a nightmare, at least in my experience, it's because you're stressed out. And then telling a kid who's having a nightmare because they're stressed out that that's because they're bad, it's just going to make it so much worse. Yeah. I think, I mean, to me, like, Hans Christian Andersen is is almost like a fantasy writer. I mean, he's just writing these weird characters and... Okay. This story was super fucking weird. Can we... Just deal with that? Let's talk about what happens. So on Monday, he has a dream that his homework is upset. Oh, God. Like, that, like there's an anxiety right there. You, you're, well, you're, this is proof that Hans Christian Andersen was a big fucking nerd. <laughs> yeah, his homework comes to life and is, like, tortured because it is physically deformed because he has poor penmanship. Right. And it yells at him for being bad at doing his homework. It's awful. And then Tuesday, the furniture comes to life. Terrifying. And then he gets put into the picture. Yeah. Into the painting in his room. And then Wednesday, there's a flood and a ship appears and he sails through the town. I like the imagery of that one a lot. And then he meets the tired homesick stork. So I thought that's very Disney-esque right there. Yeah, and And the chickens and the ducks are huge dicks to this stork. (laughs) That's right. And then he lets the stork out, and they're like, oh, I guess the stork was cool the whole time. And then he's like, guess what, motherfuckers? I'm going to eat you tomorrow. <laughs> I think that's like, that's a puberty metaphor right there. We're talking about the vampire. It's right there. Yeah, then, I guess, but it's also like a weird, like, bigotry metaphor where they're, like, mean to the stork because he comes from a faraway land and he's got long, goofy legs. Don't be legs. different. No, it's like, you can be different. And leave these mother leave these like basic bitches behind, and they'll get cooked into a stew. Exactly. And then Thursday, there's a mouse wedding, and I like this one because it sort of it reminds me of the Nutcracker. He shrinks the little boy down, and he has to wear the tin soldier suit to go to the wedding. Yeah, this also ends with the and then they have the corn kernel. That's the feast, and yeah. And then he tells him, oh, we live under your house. <laughs> like, that's not terrifying that there's a whole world living under your house. I like the ending of this story a lot because he's like, I surely was in fine society today, but I did have to shrink down and wear a toy soldier's costume. So I guess that was not great. <laughs> yeah. And then Friday, there's a doll wedding. So that's what I was saying. This is what I'm talking about. I think this is clearly compiled from multiple sources and one version of the story had a doll wedding and one version of the story had a mouse wedding and he was like, eh, I'll just put them both in. 
But I like how this song is written by the lead pencil. Like, that's definitely, like, some kind of Disney stuff going on right there. Yeah. And then the cabbage is talking. It's very strange. And they decide that they're not going to go to the countryside because they don't want to climb a mountain. Right. Yeah. And then this one, this one also has a weird thing where it's like, he explains that every time his sister gets new clothes for her dolls, and this is kind of sweet. She throws him a birthday party or a wedding and then to, like, justify them getting new clothes as being presents. But this is going to be the 110th doll wedding, which means it has to be the last one. Which I guess is, like, an th- idea, like, the sister's growing up and she's right. getting older. And so she's had 110 doll weddings and now she's too old and she's not going to get any more clothes for her dolls and eventually she's going to put them away. Right. But it's just a strange thing where it's like, that's the rule. 110 doll weddings and then the dolls can get married no more. <laughs> seems very liberal it's very liberal society and then on saturday he he gets chastised by his grandpa who's a talking portrait and then sunday he turns the portrait around so grandpa can't bother them right and but that's what that's when shit gets crazy on sunday he asks for more stories and he says no i'm not gonna read you any more stories but i want you to meet my brother he's deaf So that's what I'm He's talking. my twin, so you're not going to know if you're dreaming or you're dying because my brother is exactly like me. Horrifying. <laughs> and then the ending. The brother is also named Oli Luck Oli. Yes! And at the end he says, what is the actual ending line? I want to read it because it's super unclear if he's saying, uh, I hope you have sweet dreams or I hope you die at night. Yeah. So when you don't know... At the time, which one of the men is visiting you, and if it's the dream god or the god of death, Mm -hmm. and you don't know until the story starts. So even if you're thinking that, you know, he's going to come, the same man's going to come and give you a good dream, he could not be the same man. He could be death, and you could just be on your way to, like, the great beyond. Okay, here's the last two lines of this story. These are some of the doings and sayings of Old Luck Owie. I hope he may visit you himself this evening and relate some more. Which, because they have the same name, either means I hope you sleep well tonight or I hope you die tonight. I know. But But how is that supposed to... I mean, I understand it's supposed to, one, prepare children that there's a possibility that death exists and all this stuff. But it's, it's kind of like really terrifying if you think that's a story for children. It's terrifying. Uh, but I think it's like, it, it does try to present a relatively gentle view of death, where he's like, you know Oli Luckoe is nice and friendly, or Oli Luckoe is nice and friendly, and his brother's exactly like him except he's death, so death isn't going to be like, he, he even says like, oh, you know, the, the pictures, they make him look like a skeleton with a big stick knife, but he's not, he's just a cool dude. With two so, umbrellas. With two umbrellas, so that's cool, and then it's like this... Uh, interesting idea where it's like heaven is a really good story you're told that's like the most beautiful story possible and hell is an awful story that makes you feel bad yeah i just i mean i kind of i thought it was really interesting because it kind of shows that the concept of the sandman is like has a long history in literature and in the culture and that even when we're looking at you know, like Neil Gaiman's Sandman, like you said, there are references to the dream world and dreaming in these stories. The thing I was saying was like, oh, it's surprised by how much of the Sandman comes from this. It's like, 
we get the association between the dream god and sleep. We get the idea that the dream god is like this older thing that's been... Because he says like, oh, you know, I've been around forever and the Greeks or whatever called me the dream god. Like, there's this idea that this personification of dreams and sleeping has been around forever and is interpreted different ways by different culture. And also, his sibling is death. Is another thing where I was like, I, that's the one that really surprised me. Where I was like, oh, wow, this is just like, this is exactly it. The death in this is his twin who's dressed like a like a German soldier, but it's still like Stream and Death are brothers in this, or are siblings. Yeah, and I think it's, I mean, both of them, both of them have this sort of dual nature. So the dream god has this nature where you can either see a wonderful dream mm-hmm. or you see nothing. Yeah. And then his brother, the god of death, only has two stories. One is so beautiful that you're going to fall in love with it. And one is so awful and frightful. Yeah. So you, it's always this choice. No matter who you see, you have to make a choice. Do you want this umbrella or that umbrella, this story or that story? And I think even with Neil Gaiman's Sandman, you see that duality. Like he's either vengeful or he's compassionate. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. But I thought it was interesting, like, this sort of, there's been like this resurgence, and this is another reason why I picked this story. There's been this resurgence in modern sort of literature to take these, either these fairy tales or these classic children's stories and take the characters out of their stories and either write them new stories and backstories or put them in situations that they weren't in before. And I think Neil Gaiman's Sandman is like an example of that. But I was thinking, because I had just finished part of my Hugo list, The Snow Queen by Joan Vinge, Joan D. Vinge, which was written in 1980, that's her sci-fi take on The Snow Queen, which is another Hans Christian Andersen story. Which I thought was interesting. So I feel like Anderson has become sort of this um, genesis plot point where lots of writers are looking at these fairy tales and looking at these old stories and taking the characters out of them and creating new stories, new fantasy or sci-fi stories using them. Yeah, but this one is like... There's no narrative structure to this story. There's no, not really a story here. There's continuity in between each night. Like he, they reference things that happened in the previous nights and stuff, and it's it, it's clearly like building to something because it's going through the days of the week. But there really is no like, there's no plot to this. Hallmar doesn't overcome anything. He doesn't even really learn all that much, besides like, do, do your homework and death is inevitable. Right. <laughs> Which are some wild lessons to be taught, I guess. But I think a lot of Anderson's writing is like that. They're sort of short vignettes that are meant to teach something or to prove like a point of some t- of something. Yeah, but like the Snow Queen and even like the Little Mermaid, they're they're like tales. They're like a there's like a struggle between good and evil. But I mean, he, especially in the Snow Queen, Old Luck always like. Nothing. It's it's just a bunch. It's like someone describing their dream to you. Yeah, it's almost like a fragment. Like you know, it's sort of yeah, an unfinished or it's just a sort of point to make to someone. 
Mm-hmm. Like if someone says, well, what does the Sandman look like? And then you say, okay. You read He's got an umbrella. Yeah. He looks like Death. <laughs> he looks exactly like Death. And Death looks exactly like him. And for some reason they have the same name. At least he didn't hit them over the head with the umbrella. A lot of these children's stories of that time are children getting like whipped or left outside or eaten up. Or, you know, like you know, yeah. Hans, what, Gretel and Hans. Hansel and Gretel. Hansel and Gretel, like that kind of terrible thing. Sure, yeah. But Grimm's fairy tales are like that too. Yeah. I mean they're sort of they're sort of not fully formed stories. I think there I think there's more complete narratives in Grimm's like there are usually there's a story usually there's a full story. There's I think there's very few of the Grimm's fairy tales that are just like fragments. The most like nothing one is like Chanticleer, which is just a series of vignettes. But even that, like the vignettes have like a beginning and a middle and an end this is just kind of like yeah the week's over you meant death bye bye but what do you think why do you think these remain popular why do you think people still... oh, i think this one gets dragged along by the inertia of the other ones that are popular but i think because i think the other ones are these like simple archetypal stories that are easy to digest and have these you know themes and images and characters that can be transplanted into these different situations and you could do a sci-fi version of the Snow Queen, but you couldn't really do a sci-fi version of this because, like, what would that even there, be? It would just be like already a... a sci-fi version of it. I mean, he's the Sandman. The Sandman isn't an the added... character. Yeah, the, the story may be lacking, but the character. Yeah, this, yes, the character is. But I'm saying, like, the Sandman is not an adaptation of this. It uses, it draws on some ideas from this. Well, that's but that's just... about the most you can do with Oli Luck Oi is like draw on a couple of the ideas. But that's the same thing with the Snow Queen, Vinci Snow Queen. It's it's not like the story. It's not like they you know, Shakespeare where you take that that play and you produce it in, you know, outer space or whatever. Yeah. So it's very mildly adapted from the original Snow Queen. Sure. Okay. So you didn't like the story? Oh, no, I loved it. (laughs) I just thought it was not bizarre. (laughs) Like, it felt older and more, like, primordial than even, like, a lot of the Grimm's fairy tales and stuff that I had read. Like, this this feels like these might have been, like, songs or something that ended up, like, getting translated into poetry and then getting rewritten into prose by Hans Christian Andersen. Like, these felt so weird to me like i don't know i don't know what the purpose of this story is like it does feel like oh the sandman is just like a figure in folklore and it's like well we should mention him i should write a thing about the sandman what should i write and it's just like this catalog of dreams because he couldn't really there wasn't really a narrative to draw on but i think the sparseness of it is supposed to make the child think about these things. Mm-hmm. So, like, you know, you get a vague description of a mouse wedding, and then you can imagine in your mind. Like, I think that's what it is. Or maybe it would have been more, it would have been enriched with, like, illustrations or something. Oh, like yeah, that. it probably would have been, yeah, sure. I, I Some lush illustrations of, like, the the flooded countryside and them riding on the boat with the stork or whatever. Yeah, it would, would have been great. But, yeah, like I said, like, the, the thing that struck me the most about this was the part where he's like let me see if i can pull it up but the part where he's like oh yeah no i've been around forever like the the fact that this like 19th century fairy tale acknowledges like 
pre-Christian myths and the idea of like cultures co-opting pre-existing folkloric figures was like really weird and surprising. It almost makes you feel like, oh, well, then I guess the Sandman is just a real thing because like that feels like such a postmodern idea. And the fact that it props up in this is like, well, shit, maybe he's real. Well, that's what I was thinking. Like the, that's what I was thinking about these modern series. They're almost doing the same thing, but instead of mining like mythology and oral histories, they're mining these fairy tales and these fables. Yeah. Because, I mean, like, one of the things I was thinking about is, like, a story like like Gregory Maguire. We talked about that. Like, his Wicked series. And then he wrote a book, Hidden Sea, which was about the, the backstory about the Nutcracker. Mm-hmm. And then, like, people like Marissa Meyer with her, like, Lunar series where she takes the characters from fairy tales and sets them in a, like, a dystopic science fiction future, you know, where they have cyborgs and Cinderella is a cyborg. And then, you know, the evil queen is like the ruler of the moon. I mean, so like they're taking these characters that are well known and appreciated by children and bringing them into like modern fiction. Yeah. But I think it's really crazy that it it does it so far back in this. Like this would be like if you were reading like... Mort to Arthur and Merlin was like, Oh yeah, I'm I'm Odin, by the way. I'm a version of Odin, like, it's cool. Like it's so weird that that's in there. I can't get over it. Well, I think it shows like how that literary device has been around for so long and continues to be used. Yeah. I had read I had re- re- recently finished reading this book Spinning Silver by Naomi Novak. Mm-hmm. And she had written previously another book called Uprooted, which was based on sort of Polish folk tales. I assume Spinning Silver is about Rumpelstiltskin. It is, but it's a, it's a sort of an interesting take on it because in this story, the character who's supposed to be Rumpelstiltskin is a woman. Okay. And instead of being a predator... She is tricked by this king who turns out to be a king of like these winter fairies because she makes she's a money lender in the village and she makes a comment while walking on the road that she can turn anything into silver, uh, turn silver into gold because she starts lending money and you know making more money and buying things and selling them and starts to to try to build this coffer of money for her family and this winter king i'm trying to see what their names are they're called starks they're winter fairies he overhears this and captures her and takes her to the winter world and says now you can turn all this silver into gold and because she's in a a magical world she's able to do it so then it has the sort of two parts there's the stark and miriam and she's and and the whole concept of living in the winter world and then at the same time her friend marries a czar who has a demon, a, a fire demon inside him, and he's a churn Chernabog? Yes. So it's that kind of story. So this woman, Novik, she takes these sort of Eastern European stories and weaves them into a sort of a fantasy, but with, you know, in modern aesthetic with like strong female characters and a very clear sort of 
plot line, things that are happening are sort of like, so it's kind of like taking these, not just taking the characters, but also taking the oral history of these fairy tales and weaving them into a modern story. Okay. But it's interesting. How do you feel about, because we've had a couple conversations about like literary mashups and for the most part, it seems like you're kind of wary of those. Well, Do you think it makes a difference when they're fairy tales or when there's something sort of older and more archetypal? Do you think that makes a difference when it's some, when it's like, oh, let me let me tell a story about, you know, Chernabog and Rumpelstiltskin and Wee Willie Winky, as opposed to, like, let me tell a story with, like, the characters from Pride and Prejudice and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? I kind of feel like it's almost like a re... Like, this is almost like a retelling. Mm-hmm. This is like a repackaging. But I feel like something like where you're like, okay, let's take Sherlock Holmes and put him in modern day New York. That's kind of like, that's kind of like taking a character and putting modern aesthetics on it. it seems a little bit harder. So instead of saying like, okay, let's take, you know, Cinderella and let's put her in like a dystopic future. Kind of seems like, more plausible because you're taking a character and moving it into it's almost like repackaging a Shakespeare play, but saying like, okay, now let's make Teddy Roosevelt be a detective and solve a murder mystery. It seems a little more absurd. Mm-hmm. I think the um, what's interesting to me about these sort of stories that retell or adapt or comment on fairy tales and and folklore in general is it kind of pulls the curtain back on the idea of narrative fiction in general because it's like yeah it's owning up to the idea that like oh yeah all we're really doing is recycling and recontextualizing and remixing the stories we had heard previously all stories are copies of another story all the way down to whatever the first one was and when you do, you're doing something like this um you know spinning silver or whatever or even like um i don't know like the graveyard book or something you're like Let's just do it explicitly. Let's. I'll just. I won't make any bones about the fact that I'm just, you know, taking ideas and concepts that have been like rattling around in our collective brain since I was a kid and smushing them together into the shape that fits my purposes. I kind of feel like some of the times, like with this, like um, one of the books that I had read recently was Christina Henry's book Lost Boy, which mm-hmm. is supposed to be the backstory or the origin story of Captain Hook. Mm-hmm. And I kind of felt like, oh, okay, that's interesting because you never really figure out from Peter Pan how Captain Hook gets to be the way that he is. And I think it's the same thing with, like, the other book that I read, Hidden Sea. There seems to be a lot of these. Which one's Hidden Sea? This is the one by Gregory Maguire where he writes... That's the wicked guy, right? Yeah, and he writes this sort of same thing, the origin story, the backstory of the nutcracker oh okay so it's kind of like okay well you know what how did the nutcracker get to be the nutcracker but i feel like so that's kind of like almost like an interesting exercise of like taking a character a famous character it's sort of like wicked too like oh how did how did they get to be the way that they are Mm -hmm. as opposed to saying okay now let me take the you know let me take Captain Hook and put him like you know, on a spaceship, and you know, you know what I mean. Yeah, and Peter Pan is an AI that gains sentience and yes. an avatar. This is a good story. Trademark, trademark. I'm writing this, 
Every, if I catch you stealing my idea for Space Peter Pan, I'm going to come to your house and punch you. I think there's probably already 50. He's got I mean, a, the hook is a robot hand. There's already Space uh, Peter Pan, and it's called Star Wars. So. Well, that's a good point. Man, that is, it is though, because he even does have a robot hand. So I kind of feel like, like, I find that to be like, I want to know the backstory of Captain Hook. And apparently, I mean, if you read the book, it's a good book. It's well written. Turns out, you know, Peter Pan and Captain Hook had a very complicated friendship. Are you, um, so the weird thing is we've been talking about recontextualizing fairy tales. And in my mind, I feel like we, we danced around the big boy to me, which is fables. Well, I have that on the list. I was going to ask you about that because I know you have read that and you are interested in that. So I was going yeah. to ask you your take. I on like it. fables a lot. I do think it gets a little, fables isn't uh, the, it's not super, the most consistent comic. It gets a little, Towards the end, some of the writers' more conservative political views start to leak in a little bit. Uh, but, uh, yeah, Fables is an interesting thing where it it kind of does the Sandman thing, where it's like, oh, yeah, all these stories exist together, and they all happened, and, like, Snow White can go talk to the three little pigs. And it also kind of does the American Gods thing, where it's like they're living in modern-day America, and it's sort of a story about, like... The way stories move through culture and stuff. But I was bringing it up because there is... Do you, do you know the actual setup of fables? No. So the, the thing with fables is, like, all the fairy tales used to exist in this kind of, like, vague other world that's kind of, like, laid on top of the... Whatever culture they're from. So, like, all the European fairy tales existed in this kind of, like, vague... Vaguely medieval fantasy Europe equivalent and like the, you know, the Arabian Nights stories were in their kind of pseudo mythical version of the Middle East. And at some point, this figure rose to power called the adversary. And I'm not going to spoil who the adversary is in this because it's another, I think Fables would be another good comic for us to read. But the adversary rises to power and he kind of forces this diaspora of fairy tale creatures. There's a little bit of a, of a World War II, you know, rise of Nazi Germany thing going on there. I guess this is a minor spoiler. The adversary is not Peter Pan, which was apparently what, um, what's his, what is the name of the guy? Will Buckingham? I can't remember the name of the writer. Something Bill like, Willingham. Bill Willingham. Buckingham is an artist, never mind. Yeah, his original plan was for the adversary to be Peter Pan. I remember, like, listening to interviews with him where he's like, yeah, you know, like, in my mind, Peter Pan was always the villain. Peter Pan is creepy and terrifying. Well, that's the same thing in Lost Boy. Peter Pan is a predator. Yeah. And, I mean, he's almost a predator in the actual Barry novel. Well, J.M. Barry was a mega creep. So, I think it's pretty clear that Peter Pan is is a shit. I mean, he preys upon children. You know, it's very complicated. Mm-hmm. story and it's the same thing with this book but i think like what you were saying about fable it's almost like american gods it's not repurposing the character it's sort of almost like a continuation of the story so like i think it my- is repurposing the character it's not repurposing the story though right so there's a difference because i mean now you're thinking like okay what what is odin like in modern times yeah it's like so it's a different exercise and then fables is like what is the big bad wolf like in modern times and it turns out the answer is he's Wolverine and also Philip Marlowe. Well, see, that sounds fantastic in my mind. Oh yeah, you would absolutely love Big B Wolf. That's his name <laughs> in the story. You would be all. You would love that character. 
There's also a really good uh, video game called The Wolf Among Us that's like a prequel that's about him in the 80s, and it's like a neon noir mystery of where, where the big bad wolf is the hero. It's very good. I like that. Then I also like, I was thinking a little bit about that series, the Thursday Next series by Jason mm-hmm. Jasper Ford. And I think that's interesting, but that's more like um, nursery rhymes and like literature. Yeah. But I think it's, that's like, the author creates a sort of interesting alternative world almost where these characters are alive and books are world and things that can happen in the modern world affect things that happen in the book world and vice versa, which I think is interesting. I don't know. I'm of two minds of these sort of... uh, In my mind, the question I have for you is, is this a type of fan fiction? All fiction is a type of fan fiction. Is that, is that, that a good enough answer? That seems like it covers everything. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I think it, it yeah, I, I think it is a type of fan fiction. It, I guess it's more fan fiction than a lot of other literature. I think the problem with that is an, asking that question is more loaded than it should be because I think people have a very unnecessary and I would say probably sexist uh, prejudice against the concept of fan fiction. Like, I think for a lot of people, fan fiction is an inherently negative term, and it shouldn't be. Because all literally all it is is you're just writing something with characters that you maybe didn't... Well, not maybe. With characters you didn't create. Well, I wanted to quickly go back to when I mentioned briefly The Lunar Chronicles by Marissa Myers. It's like a young adult series. This is the one with Cinder, and it's set in a post-apocalyptic world. And Cinder is, a, is a part cyborg. I read those books and I thought they were very interesting. And one of the reasons why I like them a lot is that Myers takes these characters, these female characters from fairy tales and from stories like that. And instead of taking them from being damsels in distress, she has rewritten them into strong female characters. And they're almost, they're self-rescuing princesses. And at one point, even all of these princesses get together in the final book and defeat the evil queen. So there are male characters in there, but the women in the stories are not dependent on being rescued anymore. And I think that's a really great way to take these characters that little girls grow up with Hmm. that may not send them the best feminist message and then rewrite them into a story that gives them a strong female character that they can admire. Yeah. I think, like, well, that's that's another thing about fan fiction. Like, a lot of fan fiction is people taking, you know... Okay, this is a weird thing. There is a... there. I remember... There's this, like, Eurodance song called, like, Move Your Bones by this, like, novelty act called Mr. Reanimator. And there's, like, a relatively well-known old, like, early internet Flash animation that's set to that song. And it's about, like, it's this, like, furry resurrecting a bunch of dead characters. And it hits on this idea that, like, a lot of fan fiction is people taking characters and giving them, like, different endings or a different context that allows them to explore the things they like about that character while fixing or removing... Or modifying a lot of the, like, more negative elements that are in the story. Like, we talked earlier, like, oh, I said, oh, I got a lot of problematic faves. And I think a lot of fan fiction serves to, like, 
I mean, a lot of fan fiction is, is bad or problematic, but there's a school of it that's like about dealing with those problems and creating versions of those stories and those characters that get to be the things that like they could have or should have been or that people wanted them to be. Well, I, I understand. I mean, there's a lot of fan fiction out there where Hermione is the star sure. of Hogwarts. But there is a lot of fan fiction where it's like Sherlock and Watson go on a date. Like there, I mean, there's a lot of stuff out there that's just... Yeah, but that's it's like... It's like any kind of literature. But that's there's still like quality. an act of... In a way, Sherlock and Watson go on a date is still like, in a way, an act of reclamation of like those characters and of like... You know, maybe those guys, maybe they should be gay. Who knows? But I think the uh, Sherlock, the TV series, kind of does people a disservice by, like, queer baiting a fair amount. And I think that, like, fan fiction that exists in reaction to that is, like, fine. And I think performs a pretty solid literary service. I don't know why I'm defending fan fiction so much. <laughs> because you, you're you an arguer. So if I yeah. say I love fan fiction, then you would tell me 500 reasons why fan fiction is trash. Uh, Yeah, I mean, maybe, probably. I do like to argue. But I think it's interesting because, I mean, there are some novels that we won't mention their names that have, in essence, become bestsellers that started out as fan fiction. Why are we not going to mention their it's the Fifty Shades of Grey and the Mortal Instruments series? They're the, the big boys of the yeah. of the fan fiction with the serial numbers filed off scene. I'm sure there's other ones, but I've also had like plenty of ideas I've had as a writer have started as me being like, "Oh, wouldn't it be cool if this happened in this story or with these characters?" Or this would be a great idea for uh, whatever pitch. And I'm like, "Oh, well, what if I just changed it in these subtle ways?" And then it, now it's my own thing. I think a lot of literature I mean go back to even to the ancient Greeks that I mean the stories inspired by stories inspired by stories I mean that's just the way that things are written yeah that's what I was getting at earlier that's yeah. what I meant when I said all fiction is fan fiction yeah so I mean I could see that to go back to the Hans Christian Andersen story that character inspired so many other stories and plot lines and novels because the imagery and the sort of symbolism of what happens when we're sleeping or ha what happens when we die. Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, those are things that have been fascinating people forever. The nature of dreams and the nature of death and whether or not there's an afterlife and what it's like and whether or not your afterlife is just a man in an army uniform telling you a very long story forever. <laughs> <laughs> Which, okay, sure. <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's I don't, so... Long conversation just to say I'm really conflicted about if I like these stories based on fairy tales. I feel pretty neutrally about them. They can be good. They can be bad. Um, sometimes it's a pretty effective hook to get you interested in a story you might not otherwise be. If somebody was like, oh, dude, check out this detective story. It's actually an adaptation of Chanticleer. I'd be like, oh, that's weird. I wonder what that's like. And I might be more likely to read it if I than just like hearing a synopsis of the plot without that. But I mean, like to go back to the spinning silver, this, the story was well written. Mm -hmm. It was interesting and it was sort of very robust, the world that she creates and it's sort of, I mean, they're, they're sort of, they're e like Eastern European peasants, but it sort of doesn't have this sort of old fashioned feel. Her writing's very modern very sophisticated. The women are very strong female characters. 
And I, I mean, I enjoyed that story a lot, but I think it, it, like you said, it's based on the quality of the writer. Yeah. So. I mean, you know, some people are not good writers and some people are Catherine Valenti and they write Deathless, which is a super great novel that's a recontextualization of uh, Koshche the Deathless, which I would highly recommend if you're interested in that sort of story. That's probably my favorite of this kind of, uh, I don't know if you would even call it a genre, but this like style of writing where you're remixing and reworking fairy tales. Yeah, but I think there's a long history. I mean, it, I mean, obviously Hans Christian Andersen did it in the 1840s, you know, based on older stories that he came across. So I think it's very natural for people to take those stories and bring them to modern times. Yeah. I mean, we looked at, like, one of your favorite stories from when you were a child, the Roald Dahl, the story of the Little Red Riding Hood. Oh, the, um... In the, what is it, Fractured Fairy Tales? Anyway, it's, you know, it's the kind of thing where, you know, she's she's a strong female, she's very independent, and at the end of the story, instead of being, you know, eaten by the wolf, they the the illustration is her leaving and she's got two suitcases and they're made out of wolf fur so you know she's kind of like she's not a damsel in distress she has like rescued herself revolting rhymes revolting rhymes yeah i loved those stories when i was a kid i was also a big fan of this stinky cheese man and the the what is it the true story of the uh the big bad wolf you know what i'm talking about the one where it's it's like a weird like picture book that's also like a true crime thing about the wolf exactly i've always been like I, I've always liked stuff like that. Also, I definitely can't come down on, on uh, reappropriating fairy tales because, like, that shit happens in Hellboy, and that's my favorite comic of all time. Hellboy literally fights the Baba Yaga. Well, I think, I mean, the same thing with the Dresden file. A lot of the characters, the villains, and even the protagonists are characters from mythology and, you know, Celtic culture, mm-hmm. from different sort of world stories. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm saying. Even when you're not doing it explicitly, a lot of times in writing, you are doing that. Like I said, like Merlin is pretty clearly like three generations of retellings down from like Odin or some figure that shares a common narrative and mythological lineage with Odin. Right. And then that goes on to become like the once and future king, goes Mm -hmm. on to be... You know, the Lord of the Rings goes on to be Game of Thrones. Goes on to be Harry Potter. Goes on to be Harry Potter. Yeah, so I think that, like, yeah. So maybe maybe that's just the nature, the fluid nature of, like, That's what I'm saying. Characters. It can be kind of, like, jarring when it happens so explicitly. It can almost invoke, like, um, the alienation effect, where you become too aware of the fact that this is a story because now like i said the curtain's been pulled back and you can see the gears and some stories use that effectively like that's a you know a lot of stuff is deliberately trying to invoke that and trying to get you to think about the nature of stories and narratives i know that like when someone like neil gaiman does something like that that's what he's trying to get at and that happens a ton in sandman as we're gonna see as we read more of it so, I mean, do you have any anything else to add about fairy tales or? No, not really. Not that I can think of at the moment. I think I've pretty much covered it. I said a lot of dramatic stuff. Though I will say this. So, so far in this podcast, I've said that fiction is a glitch in the universe that lets you perceive things that don't exist. And also it's all fan fiction. 
So I'm gonna we're gonna compile a lot of uh, rules about fiction for me as we go on. <laughs> but so far we're at two. So are you reading anything good? Do you have anything to share, or you have any recommendations, or? Hmm, do I have any recommendations? What have I been reading? I've been rereading Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which is the greatest work of spy fiction ever. I'd highly recommend it. If you've seen the movie, um, I think it's really interesting to read the book and watch the movie because I think the the film is kind of a masterclass in adaptation. And seeing the sort of ways, subtly and unsubtly, that they change this narrative to fit into a film is really compelling. Um, it's it's just like a really amazingly constructed story. It's we've talked before about like this kind of like um, puzzle box clockwork fiction where you're right. building this really compelling and complicated machine. And I think Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is one of my favorite examples of that. So yeah, I guess if I'm going to recommend anything, I would recommend uh, you read that and you watch the movie. And if you dig it, go back and go back or go forward and read more John Le Carre stuff. The Spy Who Came In From The Cold is really great. And I think like he does the idea of a series really interestingly where for the most part, I don't think you need to read any of his other works to get an individual one. But uh, if you read... Um, the Spy Who Came In From The Cold and The Looking Glass War. Then it provides all of this context for Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, which makes the narrative even more complicated. And he's still doing it, interestingly, because just in like 2017, I think, he put out Legacy of Spies, which goes all the way back and recontextualizes The Spy Who Came In From The Cold, which is like his second novel that he ever published. Like that story is all about the kind of like fallout and lead up to... The events of that story. So even reading that enhances the spy who came in from the cold, which in turn enhances Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, and it's just like it's all it's all very good, but kind of complicated. Yeah, I'm trying to think of the one that I read. I think he had won an Edgar Award. Hmm. Yeah, I read this. I mean, he's got stuff that's not necessarily espionage, like uh, the Night Manager. I mean, the Night Manager is kind of a spy story. That was a really good book, and that miniseries was fantastic. I haven't watched the miniseries, but it's really good, and yes. I do want to watch it. Yes. But yeah, Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is my favorite of his stuff. Um, I think The Spy Who Came In From The Cold won an Edgar Award. Yes, I, that was the one that I had read. Now, isn't there actually, I think, isn't there two movies? There's a There's movie a miniseries a with miniseries. Alec Guinness. Because there's, the, I think one thing that people don't really... Not that they don't know, but one, a thing that doesn't come up a whole lot is that Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is the first in an explicit trilogy, The Quest for Carla, which is Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy, The Honorable Schoolboy, and Smiley's People. And they adapted Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy and Smiley's People into miniseries with Alex Guinness, Alec Guinness. But the problem with The Honorable Schoolboy is that almost all of it takes place in Southeast Asia. And it would have been too expensive, but there is a radio adaptation of that where Alec Guinness does do the voice of George Smiley. Oh, okay. Those are really good too, but it's a different thing where the miniseries obviously has more time and can pack in more of the novel, whereas the movie is has a much more limited runtime, and so it has to kind of like reconfigure the story to fit. I think they're they're both interesting adaptations, but the the cho- the choices made in adapting the movie, I think, are more interesting than the choices made in adapting it into the miniseries. But the miniseries is really good. And then you, once you, if you watch both of them and read the book, 
you can get in endless fights with people on the internet about whether Gary Oldman or Alec Guinness is a better George Smiley. And then you can hate yourself forever. Do you have anything to recommend? Well, I was just going to recommend the um, the book that I had read, Spinning Silver, by Naomi Novik. It was written in 2018. And it's her take on, Rumpelst- on the Rumpelstiltskin myth, which I think is a good fairy tale, modern retelling. I like that a lot. So, what are we doing next? Oh, wait, I wanted to know, do we want to touch on the Hugo? Because we were right. <gasps> Nailed it. Yeah. Uh, the Hugo Awards were, they were announced last week, I think. Yeah. But by the time we're recording this, it'll be much later after it's released. And I was right. N.K. Jemison won a third Hugo Award. She's won one for each book in the Broken Earth trilogy, right? Three in a row. Three in a row. That's a crazy feat. But, I mean, I think she absolutely deserves it. I mean, I haven't read... Uh, oh, she the, absolutely, la- the most recent one. But. She absolutely deserves it. I have to say, I was completely, I was thrilled that she won. Mm-hmm. And for, for a lot of reasons. And I think I talk a lot about the book in, in one of our previous episodes. There was the last one where we did short stories, I believe. Yes. So, I mean, it, if for any other reason now she has won three Hugos, go read those books because they are fantastic. Was there any was there any other like surprise or upset from the awards that no I, I mean I attention? Been, since I'm only reading the Hugo Award novels I really don't pay attention to the short stories but I I thought one really nice thing was that um, John Scalzi who was also nominated for Hugo Award he tweeted that he was never more happy to lose a Hugo Award and I thought that was the nicest sort of way to congratulate her on that and i know there was a lot of of course 100 percent going to happen a lot of snarky comments made about it but i feel like that's the internet and i just let it go yeah but yeah i feel like as a writer as a woman as a you know a woman of color i feel like she none of those things mattered to the quality of the books that she wrote which were so good and so well written that even if they just Produce those books with no author name and no information about those authors. You should read that because it is so well written. It's just a beautiful series. I mean, I highly recommend it. Uh, yeah. And in your face, three times. It's never happened before. What in my face? No, just society's face. Oh yeah, <laughs> in whoever's face, whoever's man, <laughs> your face is the one that it's in. If you, you know who you are, sir. <laughs> yeah. The only thing, the only like big surprise for me was I didn't expect Wonder Woman to win for like dramatic presentation. I think that's so weird that they give Hugo Awards for that. But I guess the Hugo Award is not just a literary award. I mean, there's a Hugo Awards for a lot of stuff. You, there's like best semi pro zine. Yeah. Like, I'm not surprised that they give one to like movies. I was just surprised it was Wonder Woman, which like I liked Wonder Woman, but like kind of falls apart after the No Man's Land scene. But, uh, yeah. It was kind of like, it was very heavy in, like, women writers, which I think was interesting. But Mm. my first thought was, is this a reaction to the fact that they have been so fraught with, like, controversy about awarding these Hugo Awards? Because, I mean, every woman... No, I don't think so. I I think it was just... I would hope that the awards just went to ever... Yeah. They've all deserved them. I, I, I think we would be playing into the narrative that is often presented by bigots acting in bad faith if we assumed that there was some kind of genuine political 
statement motivating who the awards were given to. But one of the things, I, I mean, we talked about the novella award winner. Uh, yeah, that was the All Systems Red, right? Which yeah. I've not read yet, but I want to. I've I want to really read good. that too. And I had actually had that in my reading list before the award. So I'm really, I'm really interested to see what that's about. Yeah. I will say this, though. I shouldn't have been surprised that Wonder Woman won the dramatic long-form presentation. Because I forgot that uh, that category is historically whack. Because you want to know who what got it in 2016? The Martian? Do you want to know what was up for nomination in 2016? Mad Max Fury Road. Wow. Which is a billion times better than The Martian. Well, I thought, I thought it was interesting that... Um... One of the authors from one of the short stories that we read, Yoon Ha Lee, was also nominated for Best Novel. So that I thought that was interesting. Oh, yeah. For, um, uh, which one was that? Is that the Nine Fox Gambit? No. Raven Stratagem? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Wait, I forget which one comes first. Uh, yeah. No, they're... I, the not the novella is called All Systems Read by Martha Wells. Yes. Is that so the first of the Murderbot Chronicles or something like that? Yeah. Which, like, that sounds great. Murderbot, sign me up. Yeah. And the best no- novelette was The Secret Life of Bots by Suzanne Palmer. It's a big, big win for work. women and big win for bots. <laughs> in, a, in a way, 2018 was kind of the year of the bot, if you think about it. Probably. So so that was pretty good. All right. So do we have anything else or should we move on to say what we're reading? I don't have anything about bots. Nothing about bots? No, I mean like anything else to say for the (laughs) podcast. Or should we just move on to what we're reading for the next episode? I think we should just get on to what we're reading. Okay. So for the... Wait, are there any bots in the next thing that we're reading? Um, I don't think so. I don't know if there's any bots at all in Sandman. Uh, so yeah, so the next thing we are reading is Volume 3 of Sandman, Dream Country, which obviously, I mean, not obviously, but yeah, which is written by Neil Gaiman. I believe the credit on the, the volume is with material from William Shakespeare. Oh, yes. Yeah, this, this, this collection has the Midsummer's Night Dream, which is one of the most well-known issues from the series. And one of my favorite uh, issues is the dream of a thousand cats yeah that one's real good yeah so this is like i said salmon volume three dream country written by neil gaiman with material from william shakespeare pencils by kelly jones which is cool kelly jones is a artist that i like a lot he's known mostly for doing batman stuff uh charlie vess and colleen doran inks by malcolm jones the third and charlie vess letters by todd klein colored by robbie bush and steve olaf and then edited by karen berger and tom pyre who, just a side note, Tom Pyre is one of the most underrated comics writers of all time, in addition to being an editor on some great books. Okay, that's something um, to look forward to. Yeah, then. this is a, a relatively short volume. I think there's only four issues in this one. So that'll be, I think the other ones were like eight each. But I think there's a lot to unpack. Yeah, we'll spend a long time talking about Midsummer's Night's Dream, I would assume. All right, so uh, spoiler alert, stay tuned. Yep, see you guys later. Mm-hmm.